Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 78, the first 39 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, August the 3rd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our study in the life of David in the Old Testament lesson, which is 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 29. Um, we're also looking at uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 12 to 18, 12 to 28, sorry, and then uh, Mark 8 verses 22 to 33. So we're continuing sort of the theme from yesterday. You remember the theme from yesterday was was sort of the, the, the reason the Pharisees and Sadducees it, well, were uh, missing the signs that Jesus had, had given them was they pointed in a direction they weren't prepared to look. They were not pointing in the direction they thought the signs should point in. And so they missed Jesus because they were looking for a certain kind of Messiah. And we see that the disciples had a similar sort of an issue with the whole uh, bread thing. They missed the sign that Jesus had worked in feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 because now they're afraid that they don't have enough bread for the 13 of them who are in the boat. But it, but it comes down to, do, do we miss the signs that Jesus gives us? Do we, do we misinterpret things? And, and the reality is, yes, we do. <laughs> and we're going to misinterpret things most of our lives, but we're also going to have aha moments. And those aha moments are kind of the things that I want to focus on today. But, but it points to the, the fact that we frequently misinterpret a sign. We'll misinterpret something that, that's actually important, and, and we'll miss something. It's because it's hidden from our eyes. It has to do with the fall, actually. I mean, it has to do with our fallen reason. And that's the reason, yes, we need the Holy Spirit, but we also continue to have need of the Word of God. We, we can't have one without the other. The Spirit is going to speak in concert with the Word of God, not out of uh, connection with it. He's not going to lead us into all truth that that is different from the truth of the word. So that's the important thing to know is, is that the Holy Spirit's not leading us to reject the word of God, but to embrace it and to embrace what it, what it has always meant. He's not leading us into new truth that, that conflicts with what people have always believed. That, that's not the way the Spirit works. And so we, we need to get that into our head, and, and therefore we need to, to get him to teach us how to read the Bible. We, we need to read the Bible prayerfully, and we need to say, Holy Spirit, come be with me as I read this and reveal things to me. Wherever I'm in error, reveal that to me. Show me the truth in all things. And so we need to read the Bible not just on our own, but we need to read it prayerfully, and we do need to ask Holy Spirit to come and be with us when we read the Word of God, when we apply the Word of God, particularly if you're going to teach it. You really need to, to pray, Lord, please, the Holy Spirit, come be with me in order that I might speak truthfully to my people. And we're all supposed to be teachers. That's the honest truth, is, is that we're all called to be teachers because that's part of evangelism, is teaching people the Word of God. And so we're all supposed to be students as well as teachers. So in Second Samuel, David, remember yesterday, the Lord had told David, no, I don't want you to build a house for me. I'm going to build your house. 
and I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to give you rest from your enemies on all sides. And so this is David's response to that. Who am I, O Lord, that, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, to get us to the point where we are today. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. In what way is that instruction for mankind? It's largely because God knows the future. He is omniscient. And he's also omnipotent. What he knows he can bring about. What he says will happen. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So sort of the way that God did in the Exodus. He did all the plagues in Egypt for two reasons, right? One was to so his people would know that he was God, and the second was so the Egyptians would know that he was God. Therefore, you're great, O Lord God, for there's none like you, and there's no God beside you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. I mean, there is no other God. Remember, he says, have no other God beside me. Well, that's a quote that David makes right here. There is no other God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears, which is exactly what God proclaimed. So it's not just what he sees, but it's also what he hears. And who's like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed from yourself for Egypt's a nation and its gods. You, you, you moved everything out in order that we might possess this land. You established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever what a covenant does. And you, O Lord, became their God. There's only one who can make an everlasting and eternal covenant, and that's the one who is from everlasting and is eternal. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you've spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. That courage is based in trust. Trust in in a covenant-keeping God. That once he makes a covenant, it's an irrevocable covenant with the house of David. And David trusts in the character of God. He trusts in his omnipotence. He trusts in his omniscience. He trusts in the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. He trusts in his character utterly. No doubt at all. Because God's made a promise, David found courage to pray this prayer. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And, and what David's asking is, is, is that the only way to fulfill the promise that God's made, that David's house will be a house forever before the Lord, the only way that God can fulfill that promise is, is that, that he blesses them, makes them fruitful. That's what blessing is. Blessing says God gives a commandment and then blesses the person to carry out the commandment that they might have the ability in themselves to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so David's house, his family, needs the blessing of God to fulfill God's promise. And so that blessing is what David wants. 
And we always need to seek the blessing. If God makes us a promise, we need to ask for the blessing. Ask for the blessing to make it possible on a human level for God to fulfill his promise. Because that way we know that it's not up to us, it's up to him. Even the fulfillment of it is up to him because it's his blessing that enables all things. So wherever God's made a promise, ask him for the blessing. So in the, in the gospel, they come to Bethsaida, and some people there brought a blind man and begged him to touch him. Do you know that, what they asked him to do? Touch him. They didn't ask him to heal him. They just said touch him. Those two things can be the same. And clearly that's what they meant, but it's odd that that's what they asked. So they asked, but then Jesus takes him out of Bethsaida takes the blind man by the hand. You can see this and leads him out of the village. I mean, just try and get that picture in your mind of Jesus holding hands with this blind man, leaving the village where the people had brought him to get him healed. And so he takes him out, and then he spits on his eyes and lays hands on him. I mean, this is a really personal healing. They wanted him to touch him. Jesus does what he's going to do. They could have just asked that Jesus would heal him, but no, they asked him to do something very specific. So Jesus did touch him by holding his hand and leads him out of the village. And then he spits on his eyes and then lays hands on him. I mean, this is is an up-close and personal kind of healing. I mean, it would certainly be a weird thing to be the blind man. I mean, now you're being led out of the village, and, and then Jesus is spitting on you and laying hands on you. And so he does everything they ask him to do. He touched him. And then he asked him, Do you see anything? And I find it fascinating that Jesus knew. He knew something here that's odd. And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. We don't have any idea whether this man ever saw before, but he he comes up with this analogy for what he's seeing. And so we've got to believe that at some point that he had lost his sight rather than having been born without it. But, because, but why does Jesus ask that question? Do you see anything? He doesn't ask anybody else questions. He tells them what to do. But he asks this guy, do you see anything? And the man says, I see. But So did Jesus fail? Did Jesus fail to heal this guy? Or is there something more going on than that? So he laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village. I wonder what it was at Bethsaida that, that, that caused Jesus to, to say that. What was going on there? There's something weird about this. There's a control sort of a thing that they want him to touch him, not heal him. It's, it's, I mean, everybody else says, will you, will you heal him? People talk about touching the fringe of his garment. Well, if he's close enough that that could happen, then, then Jesus doesn't need to touch him. Because the man could deal with that himself, right? He could, he could touch the hem of Jesus' garment, but they want Jesus to touch him. And so they, wanna, they want him to do it their way. But he doesn't. He does it his own way. But he knows what's going on. He knows that this guy's not completely healed the first time around. And, and, and we're going to see this same kind of pattern in this epistle lesson that we're going to read in a minute. But I believe we can see it in our own lives. I mean, when we get saved, we see certain things very clearly. But then there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't see clearly at all. And we have to be instructed. We have to be instructed by the Holy Spirit. We can be instructed by people, but it's the Holy Spirit who ultimately instructs our hearts and our minds. 
to receive these things because we can hear something again and again and again and and, and have it never sink in, right? And, and then we can suddenly, in, in a blinding insight, we can see something incredibly clearly. And if you see the sort of the opposite of what's going on here is what happened to Paul, right? Paul had to be struck blind. He had to lose his sight for a while because his sight, while it might have been okay, was impaired. It was not allowing him to see things correctly. And so the Lord had to blind him in order that he might restore his sight to him, that he might now see things correctly. But even Paul talks about, it through, for now we see through a mirror darkly. And, it, and I think that we do. And so there's always ways God can reveal himself further and further to us. And I believe that's what happens with Abraham and Isaac when he takes him up onto the mountain to sacrifice him. God's revealing something about Abraham and the kind of faith Abraham has, but at the same time he's revealing more about himself and what kind of a character he has. He's not the kind of God that demands your firstborn son from you. He doesn't ask you to sacrifice your children. He provides the sacrifice, and ultimately he provides the sacrifice of his own son. But, but we can constantly, if we stay in the word of God, if we, if we continually ask God to show us the truth about things, then, then we'll continue to develop better and better eyesight, and we'll begin to see him more clearly, and we'll be, be able to see things correctly along the way. But I, but I believe this is a really good metaphor for exactly the way faith works and the way the Holy Spirit operates in our lives and what sanctification means. Because you've been justified. If you're in Christ, if you've believed in Him and you've been baptized, then you've been justified. But the process of becoming like Him is sanctification. But the only way we can do that is to begin to see things rightly. And we have ways of looking at the world already when we come to, to Him. We're not a, a blank slate. And so what we ask for is to know more about him that we might then apply that in our own lives. This is sort of like Plato's cave, right? Because what, he's, what, they're seeing, what he sees first is the image of reality. And then he clears it up and he begins to see things exactly the right way. And so Jesus goes on to Caesarea Philippi and he asks, who do men say that I am? And they give him answers of John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, whatever. So what he's asking here again is, is that how do people see me? Are they getting it? Are they understanding who I am? And then he finally asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ. But then he tells him not to tell anybody because it's the matter of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit to do that. But but now they're looking for a false Christ. And so he doesn't want Peter to tell them that that he's the Christ because they'll be looking for the wrong thing. They're not looking for the Christ who is going to be crucified. And we know that because Peter's not looking for it. And that's what happens next, right? He tells them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days rise again. And Peter said, no, 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 no. You don't understand the Christ. Well, if Peter doesn't understand his own confession, then, then how can anybody who hears that confession begin to understand something else? So Peter didn't have full understanding even of the words that he was used. He had kind of a false Christ in mind. And so now we go over to the book of Acts, and we're seeing Paul first, and now he's finally brought up, after 18 months in Corinth, he's brought up on charges that this man is persuading people to worship God according, contrary to the law. Paul begins to make his defense, and the proconsul uh, Gallius, immediately, Gallio, I mean, immediately looks at the Jews and says, what does that have anything to do with me? This is a matter of your law. You take him. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized a guy named Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue there, and they beat him. In front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So they're just wasting his time, is essentially what he what he said. And they're mad 
because this Sosthenes guy has, has brought them there. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer, took leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria, and with him um, Priscilla and Aquila, and then he was under a vow here, which was a Jewish thing. Um, and I'm not sure what the vow was about or why he took the vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And they asked him to stay longer, but he said, no, I'm not. I will return to you if God wills. He's at the end of this journey, and he goes back around then to Caesarea and goes up and greets the church there and then went back down to Antioch, which was kind of the base of his operations. And so after he's there, he goes through Galatia and Phrygia, um, speak, strengthening the disciples. Remember, he had just been at Ephesus, and so a, a, Apollos, a Jew, a native of Alexandria, which is the greatest center of learning in the world, um, comes to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. He, Apollos is not a, a Jewish name, by the way, just so you'll know. And so he, there's, it's a very Hellenized kind of a name. He's, he's named after one of the Greek gods. And, so he, but he, and he's from Alexandria, so he, he's likely to be a Hellenized Jew who, who has been well-educated in Alexandria. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he didn't know about the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about what happened after the crucifixion. He didn't know too much about the resurrection. He certainly doesn't seem to know anything about what happened at Pentecost. And so the, Priscilla and Aquila hear this guy speaking, and they're impressed by him, but they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. There's, he, he, he had a partial understanding, and I think we all have a partial understanding because it's impossible to fully understand and, and, and know God completely. It's impossible, in fact. We, we tend to be kind of like Job, right? Because Job has this complaint all along through the book of Job, that he continues to make, and that, that is, this isn't fair. What's happened to me is not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I having to deal with this? I need to be vindicated. And, and instead what happens is God shows up and vindicates himself and says, I'm God and you're not, Job. And he points back and says, the answer to your question of why this happened, he said, do you know what happened at creation? Can you tell me all these things about creation? Can you answer me any of these questions? And the answer to those, I mean, they're rhetorical questions. The answer is clearly no. But what he's pointing to is to say, you would have to know everything going forward from the moment of creation and even before that, really, until now to understand what I'm, what, what's going on here. So stop complaining. Trust me. Trust my character. And so Job, after he hears all this, he answers, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And I think that, that we all are in those shoes. Job is content that God is good that God is just and God is loving. And that's enough in the end for Job. And here, that's exactly what's going on, is, is that, that Apollos understands some things, but he has an incomplete understanding of the gospel. He doesn't understand about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't understand about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a great many Christians that don't understand about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I know because I was one for a long time. And then I saw God do great things. I saw him do amazing things through the power of the Holy Spirit. I saw people healed. 
I saw people restored. I saw relationships restored that were utterly broken forever. I saw God do amazing things, and I'm still seeing Him do amazing things. But we've got to have the eyes opened by the Holy Spirit to see those things.